as one church, we're doing work. Hey! Thanks, John. You can have a seat. The kids are dismissed to Children's Church. Hope you had a good time. Wow. I'd like to share a little number with you, too, today. It doesn't have rhythm and it doesn't rhyme. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says this. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? That you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst. You know, I've been in ministry now for quite a few years. And I don't know if you know this, but there is a real sickness among pastors. It's called steeple envy. I don't know if you ever heard it. We, it's where you go to another person's church and you envy how cool it is. Right? You go to their church building. And you say, well, that's not a true thing. But I want to show you some of the churches in this world um, that a person can be envious of. Here's kind of a cool one. Huh? Wouldn't that be a great place to have a wedding? That's beautiful. How do you com compete with that? Or how about this one? You know, look at the beauty of that. It's like you don't even have to preach. People can just kind of walk around it and feel the bigness and the honest of God. If you don't really, you know, here's a sweet one, kind of different area. If kind of the old architecture isn't your thing and you like contemporary, how about this? You know, and you can find churches just like these. From the one we're looking at now that are smaller, that are bigger, that are all kinds of things. And, and I've had the chance to go to this church and, and meet the pastors. And some of the pastors were mentoring me from this church. And you see the background. They got, like, stuff in the basement where they build these sweet sets. And then, the like, the basement comes up to the top on the stage and stuff. And you, you really look around and you go, man, whatever church I'm a part of, it is pretty dinky. We just bought a couple TVs. They work every third Sunday or so. It's awesome. <laughs> you know, or even in town, the other day I was at this church, and they got four TVs, and they're, like, huge, you know? And then you look in the back, and they got, like, people with headphones on. They're landing shuttles and stuff like that, you know? And, and you're, you're just, you begin to think, like, sheesh, how do you compete with that? I mean, how does the church compete with that? Um, how, do you, how do you move on? How do you... How do you exist in the same community? And, you know, when I begin to have those thoughts, um, sometimes I have to get back and I have to remember. I think one of the worst um, translation mistakes that was made by Christ followers was our translating the word ecclesia into church. In the English language, a church means a church building. That's what it means. That's where it comes from. That's what it's supposed to be. It's a building. And so we ask people, where do you go to church? What building do you gather at? What building do you go to? Which t-shirt do you wear or which sticker do you put in the back of your window, right? I mean, where do you go, where do you go to church? And a lot of times we go right to the building. But today I'm going to do like a speed lesson all the way through the scriptures. And I want to say that I think God always intended church to be different. God always intended church to be something, in one sense, much more simple and much 
much less fancy, and at the same time, much more difficult and much more complex because it puts you and I at the center of church. Because it takes it where you and I can't come sit in a seat and say, well, the church should have. Well, that church, well, they should do. Well, they need to do. But instead, church becomes you and I. So when we have those critiques of the church, when we have those ideas of what the church should do, it's really the Holy Spirit speaking right to you or I. So let's get going right away. Genesis 1, I want to show you a scripture here. I'm not going to read it all. But you know, right away in the scriptures, God makes humankind, right? And remember, he makes humankind and he makes them in his image. Humans are supposed to be the image bearers of God, okay? Humans are supposed to be the place where you experience God. So instead of going like, well, I was at this one church, and I really sensed God's presence, so I went to this other church, and I, and I, you know, I didn't sense God's presence, I'm like, really, were there not people there? I mean, what was the deal? But in the very beginning, the very thing that was supposed to reflect God, now don't get me wrong, architecture can, it's okay to build things, but in the very beginning, the thing that God designed to reflect his image, to bear his image, were humans. Not a mountain, not a building, not a lake, not any other thing, but humans were supposed to reflect his image. Uh, Next, in Genesis 2, when you see these humans that were supposed to reflect his image, they have two very important roles in this world, and that's to tend and to care for it, or to work it and to take care of it. If you would kind of check these words out in the Hebrew, they have kind of two nuances to them. One of the nuances is part of human's job or part of the people who are supposed to reflect the image of God, who are supposed to be the presence of God, who are supposed to kind of help the world see who God is and what God is like, one of the things they're supposed to do is to take uh, tend for the world. Tend has the nuance of make sure that it doesn't get destroyed. Protect it. Keep its beauty. Kind of hone it in. We kind of all know that, right, with our families sometimes and with people and with things where we, we have this urge to protect things. And then the other thing is to work it or to care for it. And that word has this nuance of um, taking what God already started and advancing it, doing something more with it, becoming like God and becoming a creator, a creative, and uh, somebody that makes something and does something. So at the very beginning, the thing, the place where people were supposed to experience God was people. They were the image. They were the place. And those people were supposed to tend and to care. They were supposed to be at work. They were supposed to be involved in this world. And you know the story, how it goes. If you go um, on, one of the things I love about this story is if you go further into it, you see that God comes and he walks with human beings. He's in the midst of their tending and caring, right, at the beginning in the garden. But you know how the story goes, and the story of Adam and Eve isn't their story as much as it is our story. Adam and Eve eventually decide they know better. They know how to do something different, and they're going to take care of things the way they want to take care of them, and God's not involved. And all of a sudden, this thing gets all messed up. And as you keep going in Genesis, you see these people who now have this dilemma of, They know and they sense that they're made to be something, which is to be the image bearers of God. They know that they're made to be in communion with God, but they don't know how to quite do it. And so there's all these complex stories that are going on, and eventually humankind kind of advances, and 
We see this next story I want to highlight quickly as we're moving. And trust me, we're getting somewhere, so stick with me. Stick with me. We're getting somewhere. Is Genesis 11. Have any of you heard of the Tower of Babel? Any of you heard of Babel? Okay, so the next story we see in Genesis 11 is Babel. So as these people of God are trying to figure out what, where do we belong? What, what are we supposed to be doing? This place is a wreck. How do we get back connected with God? We see them eventually come up with some advancements where they can actually build buildings. And when they can build buildings, what's the first thing they do? They build a tower. And I want you to read this because it gives us an insight into humanity a little bit. It said, they said to each other, come, on, come let's make bricks and make them thoroughly. They used bricks instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered all over the face of the earth. Isn't it interesting that sometimes in our quest to meet God and to find God and to reach the heavens, what we really do is we have a quest to make something for ourselves. Isn't that interesting? How sometimes that can get mixed in, how it can sneak in. You know, sometimes I wonder if all of our energy in buildings and all of our energy sometimes even in programs, sometimes I wonder if there's this weird mixture in us as humans where on one hand, yes, we want to see God do something great and we want to see ourselves reconnected and put back in connection with God. But I wonder sometimes if we want to build something for ourselves. And that doesn't mean just if you're doing it well. It, it doesn't mean just if you have a big church. I mean, it, it could be a real small church that has these exact same issues. And a big church might not have any of these issues at all. But I wonder sometimes if we want to build something for ourselves. And I don't know if you've had this thought, but I've thought, what could be built to make a name for me? I've had those thoughts, right? I want to leave a legacy. And so I've done a lot of questioning of some of my friends and my families, and I thought, what kind of legacy could linger? What kind of legacy could be around? And, and if you're ever in pastoral ministries, um, you'll, let me give you a little hint into us. When we say things like, it doesn't matter how big our church is. I'm just here serving the Lord. What we're really saying is it really matters how big our church is, and I hope by saying that more people come. Because, <laughs> yes, we really believe God can make a difference and can do things, but sometimes the human side of us still gets worked up in this weird thing and wanting a name for ourselves. Like, pastors still kind of want to write the book, right? You know, they still want to be the person people refer to. So um, I've had, what, 15, 16 years of ministry, so I thought, decided to talk to my family. What legacy? How could I leave a name for myself as a pastor? And here's what my kids came up with. They thought either a memorial bathroom or a stadium that looks like a toilet in my name. <laughs> this is actually the design that the state of Minnesota is considering for the next Viking stadium. But, you know, I mean, sometimes you can look around and you see dorms named after people and you see, I mean, you see placards on the back of chairs in memory of people. I mean, you see there's all this sense sometimes of wanting to make our name. 
And sometimes in wanting to build something, in wanting to create something, sometimes we can forget that that's not what God intended from the beginning. What God intended from the beginning was for us, us ourselves, to be the image bearers. For us to walk with each other and be in community with each other and in be in community with God. Well, the story continues. And next you see God trying to help the people be a little bit more clear about what he was up to. And the next story you see as you go through the scriptures is you see God speaking with Abram. And God's trying to say, okay, it's not building a tower. It's not killing each other. It's not deciding that God doesn't exist. It's not walking around in the garden deciding to do things your own way. But what it is, what it is is this, Abram. It's me making an agreement with you that I am on your side, that I am here for you, that I am helping you, that I'm going to bless you, that I want the best for you, that I have good intentions for you. And then when I'm on your side, Abram, and I bless you and I have good intentions for you, I want you to bless the rest of the world and to make, not a building, but to make what? A great nation. People. I want you to be with people. I want you to impact people. I want you to kind of create groups of people and change their lives. And so it's like this story starts pretty good. We're image bearers. It takes a wreck when Adam and Eve decide, well, we're not going to really do it your way, God. It kind of tries to get some momentum when people say, let's build a big, huge building. And it doesn't go the right way. And then next, finally, God says, let me be really clear with you. Now, if you follow the story again, you know what happens, right? These people go, and they make a pretty good effort. And um, eventually the story goes that these people begin to forget what their purpose is. They begin to forget that they're out there to bless the world, to be on the side of the world. And in fact, eventually they get scared and they get worried um, by looking at some of these other kingdoms that have beautiful buildings and have all kinds of resources. And eventually God's people find themselves in Egypt, right? They find themselves in this place where they're making buildings to represent Pharaoh, the God, to show his majesty, to show the power, to show how good and how awesome and how great things are going in this kingdom. And so they find themselves in Egypt, and God eventually delivers them from Egypt because he has something more for them. And I want to stop um, in this next part after God delivers them from Egypt. And I, I think sometimes we miss the importance of what happens after God delivers them from Egypt. Because these people have been taught, they've thought, they believe that their only worth is building these buildings, getting something magnificent done. And God does something unique out in the desert with them. One of them is in Exodus 19. He takes them up to Sinai, and yes, there's the Ten Commandments. But before the Ten Commandments, God speaks this interesting thing on them. He says, now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, out of all the people, out of all the people, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And God pulls them aside and says, look, I'm trying to create a group of people. A holy nation, a kingdom of priests, people who mediate for the divine, 
who show each other and who show rest of the world what God is like. This is what I'm trying to create. And so you're like, all right, he's kind of getting God's people back in store with it and going on. Um, and here's an interesting thing, too. If you look in Numbers, which is actually the same story that's happening in Exodus, there's also this interesting thing where Moses says, okay, okay, I know that you, we're a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, but he goes, how are, how are people going to know you're with us? Give us something, some sign, some symbol, something tangible. And so God says, fine, I'll give you a place to meet and gather. It's called the tabernacle. And the interesting thing is, is that this tabernacle sits in the middle of God's people. And there's an interesting thing as you read this that happens. When you know that God is moving and when you know that God is working, either a cloud of smoke or a cloud of fire sets on this place, right? And when a cloud of smoke or a cloud of fire sets on this place, all of the people recognize that God wants them to move, to go somewhere. So there's, this all, there's always this tendency, we need a place, we need a thing, we need something visible. And sometimes it's like God says, okay, here's the deal. I'm moving you, I'm moving you as a group of people, I'm taking you somewhere, but Moses, if you just can't go tell the people, here you go. Here's some fire, here's some smoke. When they set on this place, we're heading out. And so from here, the story continues. God's people now have this place, this movement. When the presence of God comes upon them, it's time to move. It's time to head out. It's time to go somewhere, right? But remember, the promise is to be a kingdom of priests, to be a holy nation. The tabernacle is only there as a place to remind them and for them to see God and to get moving and to get going. And so if you know the story, the people eventually get in to the promised land. There's all kinds of things that happen between the promised land, right? Now, there's this interesting thing that happens. Israel decides at one point, it looks around and it looks at all the nations, right? Steeple envy, right? Looking at what all the other nations have. Well, they have a leader. They have a king. We don't have a king. And God kind of says, you don't need a king. What I want you to do is I want you to be in tune with me and my ways and teaching each other and, and what the scriptures are saying and what the Holy Spirit's leading you. And they're like, no, 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 we need a leader. So God said, fine, you can have a leader. So they get this leader, David. And then David's son comes along, and David does this. Or David's son Solomon does this. He builds the first temple. He builds the first church. And this thing is ginormous. This thing would make Willow Creek look little, teeny in splendor for its day. There is no expense spared. In fact, when you read the scriptures, it talks about like 30,000 people, and they have these like elaborate shifts working on the temple at one time. Now, the interesting thing is, is God didn't ask Solomon to build a temple. And the temple becomes the heart of the worship of God's people. It becomes the heart of where they go and they kind of experience God. It becomes the place where they believe that God is dwelling, that he's living, that his actual presence is on earth. Um, one of the interesting things I find, and I just want to point out this in, uh, 
1 Kings 5, not only do they build a temple, but they kind of lose their way. Remember the people of Israel were slaves? And God heard their cry, and he freed them as slaves. And then they get their own land, and what do they do? Oh, they put Adoniram was in charge of the forced labor. Wow. Wow. Isn't it amazing how sometimes when we're making things and when we're doing buildings, and, and I think all in good intention, I don't think Solomon hated God, but sometimes we can lose focus of what God's really up to. Now the people are so focused on building a temple, a church building, that the people of God themselves now have slaves. Doing to another group of people what was happening to them in Egypt. All so that God could dwell in their midst. Man, it doesn't take much for us to get off base, does it? Remember, it starts God looking at people, making people so you're the image bearer. You're where people experience what I look like, what I am like. And he walks with them and he fellowships with them. And so the temple goes on, and you guys know a lot about the temple. The temple becomes the main place of worship. It's, it's, an, it's an incredible holy site. There's the Holy of Holies where we believe God dwells. Anything that happens outside of the temple um, needs to really be ordained by the temple priests, the people that are in that temple, because that's where God is. That's where you experience God. That's what God looks like. If you want to experience God, you come from whatever corner of the world you live in, and you come to the temple, because that's where God is. That's where we experience God. And so this goes on until another guy enters the scene. Um, you may have heard of this guy. His name is Jesus, all right? Now, Jesus has some interesting conversations that deal with the temple. It's almost like Jesus is God himself and has an understanding of what God wanted to do and what God first intended on this earth and what God first intended for people. I want to show you um, a couple conversations. First, in John 1, um, you see this theologian saying, um, the word became flesh, all right? And the word was with God and the word was God. Now, this is a real important statement because for the Hebrew people, the word capitalized means God himself, the force that created the world, this force that created humanity, this force that created everything we know, that it put flesh and blood on, all right? That it put on flesh. And then if you were in a Greek at this time and you weren't a Jewish person, you didn't believe in Yahweh, you believe that there was this ultimate force called the Logos, the Word. That this ultimate force was out there and it was kind of in charge of things. And the author here says, look, this powerful force that holds the world together, that created the world, it put on flesh and blood. We call that person Jesus. Now watch what Jesus does. He becomes, he puts on flesh and blood. Watch what Jesus does in some of his conversations about the place where supposedly God dwells. The place that billions of dollars in today's money have been spent to build. The place where you come to experience God. The place where God dwells. The place that has the handle on truth. Watch what, God, what Jesus does in some of his discussions about it. 
All right, so this one time he's having this discussion, and the people are saying, <coughs> if you're really the Messiah, give us a sign, okay? Give us some sort of sign. So Jesus says this. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, I can destroy this temple. He's looking at the temple. <laughs> I can destroy this temple, and I will raise it in three days. I can destroy this temple, and I will raise it in three days. So the very place that you think that you spent all your money on, that you spent all your time on, that you've gone to incredible lengths over, that you argue about, that people have to be in the right shape to come into, I can, I can recreate the place where God dwells in three days. Three of them. And I can destroy what you've created, and I can recreate it in three days. These would be huge words for the religious people. Huge. And then he says, they replied, or go, go ahead and go to the next slide. Here's another conversation I want to show you. Um, Jesus is off with his uh, disciples, and they're picking grain on the Sabbath, right? And um, the Pharisees have an issue with him picking the grain on the Sabbath. And it's a sweet story. Um, but there's an interesting phrase that he says when he gets in the argument with the Pharisees. They're like, look, you can't be the Messiah. You're breaking the Sabbath. You know what the rules from the priests at the temple say. You can't collect grain on the Sabbath. And he gets in this interesting discussion with them and says, basically says, well, look, David at one time went into the temple and took the bread to feed his army, the holy bread, like the communion bread, just to feed his army um, because he was desperate. And then he says something to them. He says, oh, and by the way, I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. Yes. Could you imagine this? Oh, by the way, your temple? Something's greater. Here. Mm-hmm, looking at it. Wait a minute. You're telling me that there's something greater than this place that we spend billions of dollars on that we believe has to be just perfect, that you have to know exactly what you're doing to approach, that we have, we have dedicated our lives to, that our worship is centered around where God dwells, and you're telling me something greater is here and it's you? And you know what? People believed this Jesus. And they started to gather themselves around him. They started to form groups of people. You first begin to see the word church incorrectly translated in the New Testament. Jesus begins to talk about, about creating his church, his assembly, his ecclesia, because people believed Jesus that there was something greater than the temple. There was something greater than buildings. There was something greater than this man-made thing that kind of kept itself away from God. People at arm's length. Next. But here's the deal. What happens when Jesus goes? What happens to this group of people who start gathering around the very presence of God that starts looking like Genesis, that starts tending and caring? Remember, God's disciples are healing people. They're forgiving people. They're having meals with people they're not supposed to have meals with. They're bringing people into the kingdom of God. They're letting people who aren't Jews know that God loves them and wants them as part of the kingdom. 
But what happens when this thing that's even greater than the temple disappears? What happens when Jesus disappears? And towards the end of Jesus' life, he begins to talk to his disciples, to his followers, to the assembly that was around him about what would happen. And one of those conversations, he says this, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit from whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Jesus starts setting this assembly up, this group of people up, and he's saying, look, when I'm gone, there's an advocate coming. An advocate, if you've ever worked in law or if you've ever worked with children who need advocates, is somebody who's personally assigned to you to speak on your behalf for God and for God to speak to you on his behalf personally, intimately. And Jesus starts reminding these people, like, look, when even this bigger thing than the temple is gone, when I'm gone, you're going to have the Holy Spirit. You're going to have the Holy Spirit. So, Jesus dies, right? They put him on a cross. Talk about a good way to end end somebody that thinks they're too big for their britches, right? If you're Rome. In fact, when he's on the cross, some of the people go back to his statement about the temple. Oh, you who said you could tear down the temple. Yeah, look at you on the cross. You could build it up in three days. (laughs) Look at you on the cross. So they kill Jesus, and three days later, he does what? He's resurrected. And all of a sudden, a group of people and assembly, people, no bricks, no nothing. They just go find any room they can find, and they start gathering together, and they start praying because they begin to say, an advocate is coming. Holy cow. He just made the church in three days, did he not? He just created the assembly. And this assembly decides to get together, and they find any old ragtag building, not the temple, and they sit together and they pray together. And then all of a sudden it says they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. Fire. On who? People. On individuals. Remember the thing for all God's people that showed that God was present, that God was working, that God was moving, that God had power was fire and smoke, and now it sets on who? On people. Next slide, please. What if people had the audacity to gather and expect the advocate to show up? What if people had the audacity to think that they didn't need to go to a building? Well, we appreciate gathering at this building. But what if they had the audacity to think that they could gather, that they could be with each other, 
that they could speak into each other's lives, that the fire, that the advocate would sit on them and rest on them? What if they had the audacity to think that God showing himself, changing lives, was going to be through them? What if they had the audacity to think that when they needed God to show up and speak into their life, what they needed to do is sit by a trusted friend? Because they believed that the advocate would come and that flames of fire would sit on people and that those people would do the work. What's interesting is after this deal, we finally get the church in the New Testament. And I'm not going to put all the verses up there, but when you begin to read the word church, the word is ecclesia, assembly, gathering. And the only time you hear the place church, it's never, a, it's never, ever a geographical location as far as specific. It's general geographic as far as groups of people like the church in Antioch, the church at Phoebe's house, the church at Paul's house, the church at, the church at, in other words, the gathering at, the assembly at, hey, the assembly at Paul's house, the assembly at John's house, the assembly at Susie's house, the assembly in Timber Lake, the assembly in Isabel, the assembly on the east side, the small assembly over here called a small group, the big assembly over here called service, the medium-sized assembly at the school. And all of a sudden, these people assemble with the audacity to think that God's presence would be upon them and God would do his work through him, that he would dwell with them and he would do his thing. And so, um, so this, the definition of ecclesia is an assembly of citizens summoned by the crier, the legislative assembly. So all, all it is is an assembly assembled by the crier, we would say by the advocate, by the Holy Spirit, Let's see what a church could be. Here's some things I think a church could be. It could be a family. Right? People. Gathered. Assembled. Eating supper. Hanging out with each other. Driving in a car. It could be two friends working out. You know? Pounding the weight. Wailing on their abs. But maybe looking at each other every once in a while and say, you know, and just having that discussion. Sharpening each other. Speaking, encouraging each other. Asking each other tough questions. Wow, that sounds like tending and caring. It could be a Bible study. It could be a small group. It could be men eating breakfast. It could be ladies scrapbooking and Adam scrapbooking. It could be people serving at the banquet. It could be building a house together. It could be sharing a meal. It could be having coffee. It could be having some brews. It could be camping. It could be a party. It could be at school. If there's people at school, and if they have the audacity to believe that the Holy Spirit can show up and land on them. It could be at work. It could be in a bar. And the list goes on and on and on. Ladies and gentlemen, don't you know that you, you are God's temple? And that God's spirit dwells within you. We, are the church.
doing work. Hey. One body, one spirit, one church doing work. Hey. For the next month, we want to talk about being the church. Our church building is not very competitive. But fortunately, we have some people that are gathered here on Sunday morning, and maybe we could have the audacity to think that the Holy Spirit would show up and do something unique in our midst. And hopefully more so, we could have the audacity to think that that would happen in our work, in our home, in small groups, medium-sized groups, large groups, weird people, cool people. I want you to know that you are God's temple and that the Spirit of God dwells in your midst. Let's pray. God, we love you. And uh, first, God, uh, I want to apologize for thinking that New Hope um, is the church. Uh, that thinking that sometimes the carpet and the screens and the things that we argue about and put energy into is the church. Um, God, if, 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 if it would help you to clear that out of our our lives, we would accept that. But I do pray that you put me um, close to people, that you continue to bring the great friends that you have brought into my life, that you bring people who encourage me, who challenge me, who um, question my motives at times, and sometimes who celebrate wins and who mourn losses in my life. God, uh, we know that this is about you and what you originally intended. That we um, would be image bearers of you. That you would dwell in our midst. And that we would tend and we would care. So help us to come around um, and celebrate uh, communion today and to consider what temple needs to be destroyed in our life so that you can build a church assembly, of people that have the audacity to believe that um, you'll show up in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd ask our servers to come forward for communion. We're going to end today just celebrating um, the death and resurrection of Jesus. The death of building something for our own names or something that's cool enough big enough or nice enough um, and the creation of an assembly that has the audacity to believe that the Holy Spirit will show up, the advocate will show up to work in our lives. Um, for communion, Jesus took the bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. And so today, let's celebrate a God well in our midst, that we broke his body, that we give himself uh, to resurrect something new in our lives.
drift away and I simply need